Well, we're in the midst of the Advent season. We're in the midst of the Christmas season. And uh, Advent actually started, Advent season started a couple weeks ago. And Advent, for those of you who don't know, it's the four weeks that sit in between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And Advent is a season observed by Christians all over the world. It's a time of expectant waiting and preparation for the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ during Christmas time. And as I said last week, and as I said every year, during Advent, during the Advent season, we do three things. The first is that we're thankful. We're thankful for God uh, sending Christ to the earth, his first coming. We prepare, excuse me, we prepare uh, for his second coming. And third and lastly, we celebrate. This Advent season is supposed to be a celebration. We celebrate What are we celebrating? That we get to eat lots of food and open presents? No, we're celebrating the fact that God's presence, God's presence, his spirit, his presence is here among us today. And we're rejoicing that because we know that God is near. Despite what it feels like, despite what it looks like, God is near. And that our God is not far from us. He's not unacquainted with our suffering, with our pain, with the longings of our heart. Christ's presence is here here and now, right? Right now. And because of that, that should inspire a lot of hope. We often say that Christmas season, the Advent season, is a season of hope. And if your Advent season, your Christmas season, isn't filled with hope and hope isn't stirred in your heart, then we're probably doing something wrong because mixed in the, you know, to the ingredients of this season is lots and lots of hope. Because, after all, this is the greatest story that's ever been told. This Christmas story is the greatest story that's ever been told, and it's even sweeter because it all happens to be true. And it's also very important for us to keep Jesus Christ at the center of this Advent season, at the center of this Christmas season, because Jesus is the reason for this season, as trite as that, you know, cliche is. He is the reason for this season. And I think that's important to say over and over and over again because we are so compelled and we're also tempted to put other things at the center of this season. Things like presents, things like traveling, things like family gatherings and food and all the festivities and all the lights and all the decorations. All that stuff is fine, but if we don't honor the person whose birthday it is, then we've we've really made a mess of the party, wouldn't you say? And so for that reason, we have to keep Jesus Christ as the main character of this faithful story, as the main character, as the main focus of this season. But it's also important to note that this season and this story simply would not be the same without its supporting cast. Wouldn't be the same without its supporting cast. And that supporting cast are the people and the circumstances that God used to bring about the birth on the, uh, the, the birth of Jesus Christ. I began a series last week that I'm privileged to continue this morning, and it's called simply The Ordinary Cast of an Extraordinary Story. The Ordinary Cast of an Extraordinary Story. The key word there is ordinary. When you look at this faithful Christmas story, and actually if you zoom out and look at the entire record of Scripture, God has done some amazing things in this world. He has advanced his kingdom in significant ways. And I'm so amazed at what God has done throughout the course of human history. But I'm more amazed at who God used to get all of that stuff done. The ordinary, average folks that God used to get those extraordinary things done. And that's especially true when we look at this faithful Christmas story. And so throughout this series, we'll be looking at the faithful supporting cast of this story. And the goal of this all is to help us understand that we are a part of God's supporting cast, that even though Christ has come, he's died, he's resurrected, he ascended into heaven, and he will come back again, this story has continued with us as the great supporting cast. And if we don't understand where we fit in the grand scheme of that, we'll be out of place, we'll be out of position, and none of this life will make sense. So it's important for us to understand this. So with that focus, we look at the Christmas story and we focus on the great supporting cast. Last week, we looked at Zachariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the baptizer. And this week, we'll look at Mary and Joseph. Hard to talk about Christmas 
in any comprehensive sense. It's hard to talk about the birth of Jesus Christ in any comprehensive sense without talking about Mary and Joseph. And so every year, just about every year as we work through Advent, we have to work these guys in here somewhere because their story and their involvement, their level of involvement is absolutely important. And it speaks to us in ways that are very beneficial to us. So for that reason this morning, I want to look at the supporting characters in this great story, Mary and Joseph. We'll look at Luke chapter 1. We'll start at verse 26. And if you would put your finger there and turn to Matthew chapter 1, we'll start at verse 18. That's Luke chapter 1. You can turn in your Bibles. I don't see anybody turning their Bibles. You can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1 and also turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, there are Bibles on the edges of your rows. Feel free to take one of those Bibles home with you if you don't have one at home. You could also feel free to follow along on your phones. I know lots of you use your phones. I won't assume that you're Facebooking and tweeting unless you hear something, you know, you just have to get out to the world. I'm okay with that. But in that, any case, pull out your phone. Luke chapter 1. We'll start at verse 26, and before we begin this morning, let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your truth. Thank you so much, Lord, for the opportunity to share with your people your word and your truth. I thank you, God, for this season. I thank you for how uh, there's something about this season, Lord, that people who don't ordinarily look at you or people who don't usually turn their eyes and turn their hearts and tune their ears to you, God, for some reason people turn towards you and they're interested in what you're saying and what you're doing in ways that is just not true the rest of the year. Father, I pray that you would use this season to speak life. I pray that you would use this season to bring hope. God, I pray that you would use this season, God, to change trajectories, Lord, and that your will would be done through us. Father, I pray that you would put power on these words that you've given me to speak this morning, that your truth and your light might shine through. Put, move the preacher out of the way this morning and speak to us in a powerful way. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 1, we're going to start at verse 26, and we're going to look, uh, we're going to look, begin this morning by looking at Mary's story. Look at Mary's story. And see what the Lord would say to us this morning. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, we talked about Elizabeth last week, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favorite woman, the Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Verse 34, Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she's now in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you've said about me come true. And then the angel left so we read Mary's story, particularly as it relates to the Christmas story, and we find a fascinating, fascinating character, fascinating woman here. I think it's important for us, just so we get to know who we're dealing with here, to ask and hopefully answer, who is Mary? What do we know about Mary from the scriptures? Well, one, we know that she is Elizabeth's cousin, right? We talked about Elizabeth last, uh, last week. She's Elizabeth's younger cousin, we know also that uh, Mary is from Nazareth. Um, she's a Jewish woman from Nazareth. And I don't know if you know this, but Naz Nazareth uh, was not thought well of. Um, people didn't particularly care from Nazareth. They didn't think much good could come from there. And so Mary's being from Nazareth is, is significant. We also know that Mary is a virgin. She's a virgin. She's a young woman, and she's a virgin. Um, and she's also engaged to Joseph, who we'll talk about, discuss a little bit later. And we learn very early on that Mary is a favored woman. 
She's a blessed woman. In fact, when the angel Gabriel appears to her, he says, Greetings, favorite woman. The Lord is with you. And the more we get to know Mary and the more we read about her and the more we look at her response, it's not hard for us to see why Mary is considered a favored woman. I think it is, however, important for us, though, to sort of put who Mary is and what she represents in proper perspective because we tend to go to one of two extremes as it relates to Mary. We tend to think too highly of her and esteem her to a place where she becomes the object of worship. I don't think that's okay. Uh, or, we also, or we tend to sort of minimize her importance and minimize her significance and just sort of, just sort of cast her aside as just some, some average, ordinary, uh, average ordinary woman with no significance, even though she's the mother of Jesus. And I feel like where we should fall is somewhere in the middle there. That Mary certainly is not an object to be worshipped. The scriptures never set her out as an object to be worshipped. Uh, something to be a person to be deified but I think it's important for us to understand that if you happen to be selected to give birth to the savior of the world you deserve some props okay you deserve a pat on the back or two right so Mary's not insignificant and we don't want to make her too significant but she is as the angel says she is a favored favored woman now, this distinction takes Mary by surprise as we sort of view her initial reaction to what the angel Gabriel says. The angel says, greetings, favorite woman, the Lord is with you. And her response, she's confused and disturbed as she tries to think about what the angel could mean. So even as we see her reaction to this encounter with this angel, an angel who addresses her as favored and honored among women, we see that Mary seems to sort of be baffled by this distinction. She's confused by this all. Uh, she's probably confused that this is shadowy figure that appeared to her out of nowhere, but I think she's also wrestling with what the angel, how the angel has addressed her, how the angel has spoken to her. But after all, Mary considers herself to be a poor Jewish girl from Nazareth of no particular significance, ordinary in every sense of the word, and yet the angel calls her favored. And the fact that her response wasn't, yes, that's me, you've got the right person, suggests that Mary was very humble and she was very in touch with her lowly status. And I think, as we've been saying for the last few months, that God just really, he can work with that. He can do something with that. He can work with that. So we find this humble girl, Mary, and she's having this encounter with the angel. Now, the angel continues to give Mary her assignment. Now, Mary being ordinary, Mary being common, she would soon realize that her assignment from heaven is far from that. And here's what the angel tells her, verse 30. Mary, don't be afraid, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but now she's in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. The angel proceeds to drop a bomb on this young, humble girl from Nazareth. And in an instant, her life is changed. He speaks to her about this mysterious virgin birth. He talks to her about how she will be the carrier of the God child. Now, this is a tall order. I mean, the implications of this are far-reaching. This story would be scandalous even in this culture, uh, let alone first century Palestine. And so he lays this story on her. You're going to have this virgin birth, and you'll be carrying the Son of God. Can you imagine telling that story at the baby shower? <laughs> All of the women say, Mary, tell us that story about this this, this virgin birth of yours, right? Tell us how the Holy Spirit came over you, right? I'm sure they believed that one, the first couple tellings of it, right? But drops this bomb on her, and her life is changed forever. 
Now, Mary has a partner, in, a partner in this, and his story is equally compelling and equally significant. We look at Joseph's story, excuse me, in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, we'll start at verse 18. Joseph, by the way, is, this is my guy. I know I told you about that, you know, when we were talking about the Old Testament, Joseph, but I, every now and then I forget, you know, Joseph doesn't come up a lot throughout the regular year. But whenever I get to Christmas, I remember that I like this Joseph, too. I like this Joseph a lot. In fact, I like both Josephs because these dudes are the real deal. They are the real deal. And if you don't know Joseph's story, just wait a few seconds. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Her fiancé was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through the prophets. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife, but he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. What a great guy. What a, what a, what a unique story. What a fascinating tale. What a fascinating man. But who is Joseph? What do we learn about Joseph? One, we know that Joseph is from the family line of the great King David of the Old Testament. We know that, David, uh, that Joseph is engaged to be married to Mary. The scriptures tell us that Joseph was a good man. Joseph was a good man, but Joseph has an issue. He has a little little bit of an issue, little bit of a dilemma. You see, his young fiance that he hasn't even had the opportunity to marry yet has, she's come up pregnant. She's come up pregnant. And even in this culture, that's a big deal, especially if you don't remember being the one who got her pregnant. Okay, it's, it's, an, it's an issue, it's a problem. And this was not good especially in first century culture. It's not, it's, not a good, it's not a good thing. It would be unbelievably scandalous. It would have been devastating to his reputation, devastating to their future plans together, and utterly embarrassing for Joseph. Utterly embarrassing for Joseph. And because of this unfortunate event, he had legal grounds, social grounds, to, to set her aside. And he could have done so in a way that would embarrass her. He could have done so in a way that would just make broad and make public uh, her infidelity to him. But she, he chose not to do that because we already learned that Joseph, he's one of the good guys. He's one of the good guys. And so Joseph probably learned of this pregnancy uh, from Mary. Um, and as he thought about how this was all going to work out, man, he was just probably just trying to set the wheels in motion to get his life back on track, to set this aside and move on. And then he has this encounter with the angel, a marriage-saving encounter with an angel. And the angel gives Joseph his assignment. As he considered this, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel says, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so Joseph is probably like, okay, okay, I believe it now. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this to fulfill what the prophet had spoke. So Joseph gets this tall order, and I don't know if you know this, but it's a tall order to be a stepdad, a tall order to raise a child that's not your own as if he or she were your own. That's a tall order, and some of you are doing it very gracefully and very lovingly, and I admire you for that. But here Joseph is, and God is asking him 
to raise this child as his own, a child that's not his own. And to make matters a little bit more complicated, this also happens to be, you know, the son of God, okay? So Joseph, don't screw this up, okay? I'm going to hand you my son, God says, raise him right and don't mess this up. That's hard enough to raise just a regular kid, right? Can you imagine raising a child with the full knowledge that this is God in the flesh? I mean, how do you ask Jesus to clean up his own room? You know, how do you ask him that? How do you even approach him? How do you even dress him? Do you, do you say like a prayer? Um, Dear Lord, would you, you know, pick up your Legos? Lord, would you be home before the lanterns come on? How do you do that? That's not what we're here to talk about today, but it's a, it's a question that I've often pondered. They probably just called him Jesus. Nonetheless, Joseph is tasked, tasked with doing something very difficult. Doing something very difficult. Doing something that probably they didn't together factor into their future, into their life together. The Lord drops this on them. And when I see, when I, what I see when I look at Mary and Joseph, I see... I see a power couple. I see a power couple. Some of you may or may not be familiar with that term, but a power couple in our, con- uh, in our, in our cultural context is basically a couple, uh, both of them have their own wealth, independent of each other. Both of them were famous before they got together. They have tremendous influence, and some popular power couples would be, you know, I don't know, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie or you know, Kanye West and his wife. You know, um, you know, and some other, some other, you know, Jay-Z and Beyonce, these people were independently wealthy, famous before they, before they got together. And this is the power couple. They got so much money. They're good-looking folks. People want to be them. People want to read about them in magazines. Well, the power couples in, in the context of Scripture, in the, the grand narrative of God's story, are a little bit different from the power couples of this world. Their characteristics are all together different. Their influence altogether different. What makes them a power couple altogether different? And I tell you, you married couples, you ought to aspire to be a power couple in God's context. And those of you who are single and looking for a mate, you know, you ought to aspire to be married uh, and find yourself within the confines of a marriage that cre- creates for a, a power couple as God would view it. I'm not talking about wealth. I'm not talking about opulence. I'm not talking about immeasurable influence. I'm not talking about good looks and beauty. I'm talking about cup- a couple where both people have resolved to do the will of the Lord no matter what. Where two folks have come together, two imperfect, ordinary folks have come together and said, listen, as, and as much as it concerns us, we will say yes to the Lord. We'll go to sleep and we'll wake up and say yes again. We'll go to sleep and wake up, have some breakfast and say yes again. We'll wake up and do it again over and over and over. That's, that's a power couple. That, that's what Mary and Joseph were together. And this was a match made in heaven. And God knew that they would say yes. He knew that they would be these types of folks, which is precisely why he chose them. And when we look at Mary and we look at Joseph, there are striking similarities between the two of them. And I would submit to you that Mary and Joseph, these are the types of people that God uses to get stuff done in the world. I know they told you that the really special people get used by God. The people with all the talents, the good-looking folks, the people who can speak well, and the people who have lots and lots of influence. But when I look at my Bible, I see God using people, humble people, ordinary people that just happen to say yes whenever Jesus calls. They just happen to say yes whenever the Lord slips an assignment under their door. These are the types of people that God would use to change the world. Are you that type of person? Married folks, are you that type of couple? Single folks, are you looking for that type of mate? And I don't know why I just feel compelled to just hang out there for a little bit. I don't know, somebody needs to hear this, but you know, you, you, you single folks who are dating and you're, you know, you're trying to find a mate, listen, it's really important to choose well on this. 
It's going to be a long, hard life for you as a follower of Jesus if you choose to marry someone who doesn't share your passion and doesn't share your zeal to walk this life out on the path of obedience. It's going to be a long, hard road for you. You've got money to steward together. You've got children to raise together. You've got your life and your future to choose for or against the will of God. And should you decide to marry somebody where you're questionable about whether or not they're as committed to this journey as you are, you will struggle for your entire marriage. And some of you are there right now, and it's not fun. And so as hard as it is to pass up, you know, slick Willie with the nice car and the nice wheels, he's always smelling good, you know, he kinds, of, you know, likes the idea of church, and maybe he'll go to church every once in a while. It's hard for you to get him to come to church. He doesn't answer his phone on Sundays because he knows you're going to ask him. You know, or brother, it's hard to pass up the sister with the, you know, the shapes and the heels and the lipstick, and she's smelling good, and, you know, she's got her own stuff. It's hard to pass that up. But if they're not on the path of obedience for their life, they certainly won't be that on that when they join with you. And it's going to be very, 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 very difficult. Back to my story. Power couple. Mary and Joseph knew that their life was not their own. And that God could come calling us at a moment's notice. Could pop in on them and switch some stuff around and that they would still, they would still say they would still say yes. They would say yes, no matter the cost. No matter the cost. And I think it needs to be said that if you're going to do something for God, it's going to cost you something. If you're going to do something for God, it's going to cost you something. And I realize that you can go a long time being a Christian without somebody making that clear to you that it's going to cost you something to follow Jesus. And should you find at this very moment that your life with Jesus isn't costing you anything, you're probably not doing it right. I'll say it again. If you find that your life with Jesus is not costing you anything, it has not cost you anything, then you're probably not doing it right. If you've arranged it so that all of your life with Jesus and how you steward your life, your influence, your resources, your time, your energy, if you found that all of those things, you're using those things to do only the things that make you happy, only the things that make you feel warm and fuzzy, only the things that suit your fancy, you're probably not doing it right. Probably not doing it right. And this is why we ask people to come to the shelter and serve the poor with us. This is why we ask you to bring your shovels and shovel the walkways of the seniors who are too old to do it for themselves. This is why we ask you to give generously to God and others. This is why we ask you to raise your children in the way of the Lord and to do all those difficult things because it's in those difficult things that we understand and we prove to ourselves that we understand that following Jesus is going to cost us something. And so when we get leaders that come on board, we, hey, hey, we, we, meet us down at the shelter. Well, I don't really like that. I, hey, meet us down at the shelter. Grab a shovel. Why? Because it's part of the spiritual formation for us to understand that we're not always going to be doing things that we like. And yeah, God will ask us to do some things that we like, some things that we feel passionate about, because after all, he created us. He hardwired us for this life. He hardwired us to have a leaning towards help, you know, ministries of helps or leaning toward music or leaning toward evangelism. He hardwired us for that. But that doesn't mean that all the, all the hard stuff for us, we get to leave on the shelf. And so what Mary and Joseph, this power couple, what they discovered is that, you know, being on the path of obedience is, is costly. It's going to cost us something. And I've just discovered that the things that have come to me cheap, uh, they just haven't been very meaningful. 
And it caused me a lot of trouble. And you just get, think you're getting a bargain. You know, you think, oh, man, this is a steal. Well, you get what you pay for. And if your life with Jesus hasn't cost you anything, if you got it on the cheap, well, don't. It'll, it'll have the you know have the life of something cheap. It'll have the quality and value of something cheap. But the things that mean the most to me, they've cost me something. In other words, to say yes to God means to say no to other things. To turn my face towards something means that I turn my back toward other things. You understand this? And this is important because our culture, we want, we want options, man. We want to have it both. Don't, don't make me choose because I might, I might wake up tomorrow and feel differently. Don't make me commit to one woman or one man because, listen, there's a lot of folks around here walking around. Don't make me commit to this, Jesus, because, listen, something better might come along tomorrow. And to say yes to something, especially in the kingdom context, means that you say no to other things. And so when we look at Mary and Joseph's story, we just discover four things, four things that basically amount to the cost of being on the path of obedience, the cost of saying yes. And as we consider the cost, we see that to follow the Lord and to be obedient to him, it's going to cost you some options. It costs you some options. I don't know about you, but I love options. I like choice. That's why we like buffets, right? You can go to this place, they got five, six things on the menu, or you can go to the buffet, you can wear your stretch pants down there, man, and you can stay in there for hours. They got pudding over there, they got roast and, you know, cakes and all this sort of stuff. Why would I go to a regular restaurant when I can just go to the buffet and have it all? Well, that same thinking, we try to bring that into the kingdom of God, and it just doesn't work. It's going to cost you some options to say yes to Jesus. It's going to limit your options to say yes to Jesus. It's going to cost you some options. And not only is it going to cost you some options, it's going to cost you, it's probably going to cost you your plans. It's going to cost you your plans. You think for one second that Mary and Joseph, as they went on their walks and as they probably thought about their life together, you think they made plans to raise the Savior of the world You think they thought about, you know, what color paint do we put in the room of the Savior of the world? What type of toys might the Savior enjoy? Now, how how are we going to do this? What what do you call him, Joseph? What does he call you? Does he call you daddy? You think they planned this out? Took them by surprise, this did. Now, they heard the prophecies, they'd heard the prophets, they knew Messiah would come, but they had no idea that it would come through them. And so God had to be able to, with his folks, at a moment's notice, come and switch things around. At a moment's notice, redirect and say, hey, I know you're planning to go this way, but uh, I want you to go this way instead. I know you had planned to do this, but I want you to do this instead. And you really know if you belong to God if he can, at a moment's notice, change your plans. You know if you belong to him, if you're willing, at a moment's notice, to lay down your plans. Maybe you plan to go back to school and the Lord's calling you to do something else. Maybe you had plans for family and, you know, um, God says do something else. Maybe you had plans for that money that you keep in that coffee can. Maybe you had plans for something and the Lord told you to redirect those resources. Maybe you had plans to do this or do that and the Lord said, if you belong to him, uh, just understand that it's going to cost you your plans. That doesn't mean you shouldn't plan. It just means that you ought to, you know, you ought to hold, you ought to hold loosely. You ought to hold loosely to those plans to follow the Lord will cost you your plans. To follow the Lord will cost you your reputation. It will cost you your reputation. And if you're like me, you want to you be a person that others consider, you know, reasonably cool. You're reasonably cool. I think if you ask around about me, people might say that. That's one cool guy, man. He's, he's cool. He's a good guy. He, he, he's, he's a good guy. He's got a good reputation. But how many know that to follow Jesus, it might ruin your reputation? Now, your reputation, particularly your desire for, depends on who you aspire to be and what you value. 
Some of you don't value being thought of as cool. Some of you value being a person that's thought of as smart, critical thinker, somebody who's careful in their decision making. And to follow a God that you can't see and to do things that are, are, seem kind of crazy to other people might disrupt that a bit. And so there might be a tendency for you to hide key aspects of your faith in the public square. You might have a, a, a leaning towards dumbing it down a bit so that you don't get lumped in with all the crazy Jesus people. It might cost you your reputation. You might have to make some decisions that don't make sense to folks that you really value their opinion of you. It might cost you some status in your family. It might cost you your reputation. When we look at Mary and Joseph, this whole deal about this immaculate conception, this virgin birth, how do you think that played out in the town square? Well, can you imagine the whispers? Can you imagine the, the murmurs? Could you imagine the things that were spoken? And thank God that Facebook and Twitter didn't exist because it would have got around real fast. But to follow God and to say yes to him, it might cost you your reputation. And finally, it might cost you all of those things wrapped up. It's going to cost you some convenience. I found that the Christian life isn't terribly convenient. It's not convenient. Now, God isn't usually asking me to do crazy things at times where I've budgeted the energy and budgeted the courage to do those crazy things. He's usually asking me to do things I hadn't planned on doing and engaging people who I hadn't planned on engaging and talking to folks and engaging with folks who really kind of rub me the wrong way sometimes. None of, none of, none of those people are in this room at this moment, so don't <laughs> think I'm talking about you on the slide. But God rarely asks me to do anything that's convenient for me. And even the things that God asks me to do that are convenient, they're only convenient because I've developed a pattern in my heart of saying yes, of saying yes. And I've acquired a taste for God's stuff and for God's people. That's the only way that some of these things are convenient. But to follow Jesus is not going to be terribly convenient. And if your Christian life today is convenient, if it's convenient, if you've built around you this cottony nest of things that you just nestle in, there's nothing that puts you out, there's nothing that you're doing that is un, you know, unfavorable to you, there's nothing you're doing that's hard and that you have to wrestle with, then we might, we might want to put it under the microscope and take a look at it again because this is not a convenient life. Now you're probably saying, Pastor, I brought my friend with me today. You're not selling this for us. Oh, just nice Christmas message, man. I understand something, man. There's so many false conversions, it makes me sick. So many people hearing the Kool-Aid version of the gospel, it makes me sick. And we're not doing anybody any favors to tell them anything other than what this thing really is. I'd rather you hear the truth and wrestle with it for a year, although... You know, don't wrestle with it too long because tomorrow's not promised to you. I'd rather you hear the real deal about this, man, and wrestle with it for a while than to give you just some sugary snack and have you sign up, and when the thing gets hard, then God's a liar, and the preacher's a liar, and this stuff doesn't work. No, it works. It works if you get a hold of the right stuff. And so I'm not trying to sell you on anything this morning. I'm not trying to sell you on anything this morning. doesn't matter whether you're already convinced. doesn't matter whether you kick in the tires. doesn't matter whether you come to this thing today from an atheistic perspective. doesn't matter. You're all welcome here. But you've got to understand how this works. Understand how this works. It's going to cost you some convenience. But in light of all of that, Mary... Joseph, power couple, they're the real deal because they both, they both said yes. They both said yes. 
They both surrendered to God's plan. They both surrendered to his will. And you know what? To surrender, I mean, that really looks different depending on your assignment. It really looks different depending on your assignment. And they both said yes, and they both surrendered. This is how Mary said yes. This is how she surrendered. The angel told her what would happen, and she asks this question. But how can this happen? I am a virgin. Now Mary says, listen, I'm young. I don't know a whole lot about this whole reproductive process, but I know enough to know that what you just told me is kind of out there. And so last week, we see that Zechariah asked a question similar to this, and the, 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 the Holy Spirit struck him mute for his unbelief. Well, this is not the same type of deal. This is not the same type of deal. Mary's asking a clarifying question. She's in essence saying, okay, tell me some more. Uh, give me some details so I can walk this out. Give me some more instructions so I can be faithful to this. Give me something because i got to talk to Joe about this. <laughs> He's already looking at me sideways. She says, tell me more about this. And you know you're on the path of obedience because God hands you a tall order. And rather than saying, I, I can't do that. Oh, that's not what I planned. You say, well, tell me a little more about this. Yeah, tell me a little more about how, how are we going to work this out? You know we're broke, right? And you're saying we're going to do this? Okay. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. T tell me a little more about how we're going to work this out. Lord, you know my womb is barren and I desperately want to have children. You say we're going to have children, Lord. Tell me more. How's this going to work? God, you know I had aspirations to be CEO of that company, and you're calling me to church plant? Lord, I, it's not what I chose, but hey, tell me. Tell me more. How this is going to happen? How are you going to do this? How are you going to work this out? How are you going to play this out? And the angel proceeds to tell her more, and Mary responds, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. What a response. What a response. No matter, no, no wonder she's favored, highly favored among women. No wonder she's the woman that God chose to, to do this with. No wonder, look at her response. I love the King James Version response. Be it unto me as you have spoken. Be it unto me as you have spoken. Whatever it takes, whatever you need, I am your servant. Beauty of a servant, the best servants understand that they're servants. Best servants understand their place in the pecking order. And Mary says, I am your servant. Be it unto me as you have spoken. Joseph also said yes. And basically his yes was cataloged in his actions. Joseph woke up. He did as the angel the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. Despite the drama, despite any confusion or any embarrassment or questions that he might have to ask or the looks that he might have to endure the prospect of raising the son of God child that's not his own he got up did as the angel had said he married his wife and he refrained from having sexual relations with her until the child was born he said yes not with his mouth but with his life with his life and so as I told you last week, God's not looking for the shiny folks, not necessarily looking for somebody good-looking, lots of money, lots of status, an important person that people would look at and say, man, that person, he walks like he's great. He's got a great person's sweat. God is looking for somebody who would just say yes to him. And if you're sitting there wondering, well, could God use a person like me? Could God use somebody with my history, with my sexual past? Could some, God use somebody with my mood swings and my emotional disorders? Could God use somebody who's broke? Or could God use somebody who's on the track? Can God use somebody who's up in age? Can God use somebody that's as young as I? Can God use If you can say yes, if you can say yes, then you're in. But when you go to sleep and you wake up, you got to say yes again. And when it gets difficult and it gets hard and you get low on cash and your kids are going crazy, you got to say yes even still. And even still. And your wife doesn't want to follow you. You got to say yes. You got to say yes. You got to say, even if something better comes along, 
something more profitable, something more lucrative, something that, you know, you know, could catapult you forward or upward on the social ladder, you still, you still have to say yes, yes, and yes again. That's the only, that's the only catch. That's, that's the only catch. That's the only catch. So what's the big picture? Where's your team? You can come up. We talk about this supporting cast, and it's helpful, not just helpful, but it's, uh, it's necessary that we understand that we are part of this supporting cast. And we looked at the story of Mary and Joseph to show you what it looks like and what God can do when ordinary folks like me and you say yes to him. And so the question you have to ask yourself as you process this and as you as you consider what it would cost and what it would mean for you to say yes, is where do I fit in God's great, grand story? Where do I fit? Where, where am I? Where am I in this? Where am I? What is God calling me to do in my particular corner of the world with the people that I work with and with the children that I'm raising, with the spouse that he's given me or the life that I'm pursuing? What, is, what, what does it look like to say yes to God and, and to be a supporting character in this great story. Now, it depends on who you are, how you're wired, where you are, what your family dynamic is. It all depends on you. But you have to ask yourself, you have to locate yourself in this story. I can't do that for you. And you also have to consider and ask and hopefully answer this question. Have you built for yourself a convenient version of the Christian life? How regular is it that you're doing something that you don't care to do? How regular is it that you're interacting with something or interfacing with someone that you'd rather not? How often is it do you find yourself unsettled as you, uh, as you, as you walk out this life with Jesus, as you're on the path of obedience? And some of you, if you're answered honestly, you would say rarely. Others of you would answer never. And I'm telling you, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. And so one of the things we'll do as a church is we'll provide regular opportunities for you and your family to engage the difficult things, the dirty work, as it, as, if you will, of the kingdom of God. And so therefore you will build within yourself, hopefully, a desire to do those things. And even if you don't ever come up with a desire to do those things, you will, fall, you will, you will develop a discipline a discipline of doing those things such that when the Lord approaches you, it's easier for you to say yes. For some of you, that's just regular church attendance. That's just showing up here week after week. Now, you don't need to come to church in order to get into heaven. We're not going to be legalistic about this thing, but this is a spiritual discipline that's built into your week and built into your calendar and built into your family life each and every week and listen, there ought, there ought to be something really important to take the place of this. There ought to be something really important. That doesn't mean you don't go on vacation or, or you're sick and this, that, and the other. I'm not, we're not being legalistic about this, but this is a discipline for us. We're at the food pantry twice a month, second and fourth Saturday of every month. And I will just say that there is an embarrassingly small number of us that take advantage of that opportunity. I'll say that without any guilt, without any condemnation. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm just saying that it's embarrassing how few of us are serving the poor in a just ready-made opportunity for us to serve the poor. It's, just, it's kind of shameful. It's kind of shameful. And so some of, you, some of you are good at doing that outside of this, but listen, there ought to be a space and place in your life where you're serving the poor. Jesus says that you've done unto the least of these, you've done unto me. You've done unto the least of these, you've done unto me. You don't do it because the pastor said so. You don't do it because you might get, you know, you get the attendance checked off. You do it because this is who we are. It's who we are. Care for those who can't care for themselves. We serve those who are less fortunate. We care for the poor. We do that. We do that. And the list goes on and on and on. I don't have time to just list for you, but some of, some of us, we know what to do. We just, we just need to say yes. We need to say yes. And what I can promise you is that as you say yes, when you say yes, 
the Lord will absolutely blow your mind. You will have the absolute best life that you can imagine. I'm not talking about cars. I'm not talking about houses. I'm not talking about stuff. I'm talking about the peace of knowing that you are right with God and that you are squarely in his will and that you're on the path of obedience for your life. There's nothing in the world like it. Trust me. And if you doubt me, just taste and see. Scripture says taste and see that the Lord is good. Just try it. And so it's probably not, uh, it's probably obviously what, I, what I'm driving towards is that we're, we're getting close to our 30-day fast in January. And usually that's a really sweet opportunity for us to just practice some of these disciplines and say, you know, for 30 days, I'm going to lean all the way into this thing. I'm going to turn down some things. I'm going to say no to some things. But in that empty space, in that available space, I'm going to engage some things that I had previously left by the side of the road. I'm going to engage service. I'm going to engage generosity. I'm going to engage prayer in a way. I'm going to engage the spiritual discipline of devotion. I'm going to engage these things. And it's just, just try it for 30 days. You can do anything for 30 days. And watch the Lord blow your mind. Watch him blow your mind. God's looking for someone that will say yes to him. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for this opportunity to say yes to you again. Lord, you just give us so many opportunities to re-enlist. doesn't matter what's caused us to walk away or what's caused us to to get soft on this stuff or what's caused us to doubt. Lord, you give us opportunity after opportunity to re-enlist and say yes, to say yes again. So, you know, Lord, you know exactly who we are. You know where we are. You know what we struggle with. You know what it competes for our attention and our affections, Father. And I just pray that as you overcome Mary with your Holy Spirit, that you would overcome us today by your Spirit, Lord, and birth within us the desire to say yes yes again. And God, would you highlight the places and spaces in our, in our heart where we've not quite surrendered our hearts to you? God, would you seek and destroy the parts of us that try to carve out for us a convenient version of the Christian life? Lord, would you just annihilate that by your spirit? And Lord, would you release the gift of faith? Release the gift of faith that we might trust you, that we might hope in you. And that trust and that hope will result in us saying yes, yes, and yes again. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.